last week, uh, we, <clears throat> we read a, a great story, one of my favorites, really. Um, it was a story about Jesus healing a man who was, who was paralyzed. As Jesus was teaching inside a home in the city of Capernaum, you remember that four friends carried their paralyzed friend to see Jesus. But when they arrived, the crowd was so large that they couldn't get him up close. So they carried him up onto the roof. They dug a hole in the roof, and then they lowered him down until he was face-to-face with Jesus. And you know that Jesus did heal the man, right? He healed him. He restored his legs, and he went home probably skipping and dancing all the way home, right? But more important than the physical healing that Jesus provided for him that day, we saw that Jesus looked him in the eyes and told him that his sins were forgiven. That was a big deal. More important than a physical healing, which, you know, again, temporary, eventually he died, right? So more important than a physical healing that day, he received spiritual healing. He, was, he had his sins forgiven, and he was given the gift of eternal life. But as you may recall, there was a, <clears throat> there was a special group of religious leaders that were there that day. The, remember their names? The, the Pharisees, yes. And these Pharisees, they had come from all over Israel. They were sent to Galilee from as far as Jerusalem in order to investigate Jesus. And Jesus, being fully aware of their presence, it's not like he didn't realize that they were there, right? They're sitting there in the front row because they always have to have the front row. By the way, I noticed that nobody wants the front row today. <laughs> that's interesting. After Oh, my family's in the front row. That's great. And Nate, that's great. Right up front. They got your phylacteries. And... No, not today. But that's where they were. They're right up front. Jesus sees them, and he decides that this is the perfect time to announce that he not only has the power to heal, which he's going to do, but he has the power and he has the authority to forgive sins. He chose this moment to reveal that, to speak those words. Jesus wants the religious leaders to know that something that only God is able to do, he says, I am able to do. Jesus is, is declaring before them that he actually says, I am the son of man, a reference to a, a title that was given to the Messiah from Daniel. And he says, that's who I am. I want you to understand that the Messiah is here and I have the authority to forgive sins. And they got the message loud and clear, didn't they? They weren't exactly happy with his claim. Well, this morning, As we continue our study, we're going to see that Jesus not only has the power and the authority to forgive sins, we're actually going to see that Jesus actually goes out of his way to seek sinners. He goes after them. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, and you've heard me say this before, but I would say that this could be the theme verse for Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 19, verse 10 says, the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus was talking in Luke 19, and and what he's saying is, this is the reason that I am here. I'm here to seek and to rescue sinners. Now, over the last couple of weeks, we've read stories, right? We've read stories about people who were seeking Jesus. First, we read the story about a, a man who was full of leprosy. 
And he comes looking for Jesus and he falls on his face before Jesus. And then last week we read a story about the paralytic who, you know, along with his four friends, they came looking for Jesus. But in the story that we're going to look at today, Jesus is the one who is doing the seeking. If you have your Bible with you, turn with me to Luke chapter 5, and we're going to pick up in verse 27. Luke chapter 5, verse 27 says, After this, he went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. So Luke says that after this, after what? Well, probably sometime soon after what Jesus had, we just read about last week, sometime soon after Jesus healed the paralytic, this next story happened. Now, we already know from Mark's gospel that the healing of the paralytic happened at a home in Capernaum. This is the, the home base of Jesus's you know, earthly ministry. And Mark tells us that, that this next story took place somewhere near the shoreline as the crowds were, were following Jesus and Jesus was, was teaching them. And, and as Jesus is walking through the city, somewhere near the shoreline, he sees a tax collector named Levi who is sitting at the tax booth. Levi, what is he doing? He's doing his job, right? He's he's inside this booth. He's doing what he does every day. He's at work. And the text says that Jesus saw him. But Jesus didn't just see him, did he? Jesus noticed him. He saw a man named Levi. He was more than just somebody in, in a tax booth. He saw Levi. He paid attention to him. And, and to understand why that is so significant, why that's so significant, we need to take a minute to talk about who the tax collectors were. And we need to talk about how they were viewed by the people at that time. I mean, because we, we see people all the time, right? And look right past them, don't we? I mean, think about it. How many times do you actually notice the person that's you know, checking people out at the, at the grocery line, right? But Jesus looks across and he sees this person bagging groceries and he looks at them and he sees that person. He really saw them. But this guy's a tax collector and that ups the game so, so much. First thing you need to understand is this. At this time in Israel's history, at this time in Israel's history, the Jewish people were living under the rule of Rome, right? They were under Roman occupation. You've got soldiers on every street, right? They are under Roman occupation. And in order to maintain peace, you've heard of the, of the Pax Romana, the Roman peace that they, that they brought throughout their entire empire. In order to maintain peace in the Roman empire, uh, the Romans assigned uh, prefects or governors like Pontius Pilate who were responsible, their responsibility was to maintain the peace in their province and to collect taxes for Rome. That's your job. You maintain the peace. By the way, just a side note, that's what got Pilate in trouble in the end, his failure to maintain the peace. That's why he ended up being removed from his position later on. In order to uh, maintain the peace, though, what the Romans did is they, they, they had a powerful army, right? 
They had a powerful army and they placed soldiers all throughout their empire. And, and through fear and the use of force when necessary, these soldiers kept the peace and they quickly shut down any sort of rebellion against Rome, any uprisings they would quickly stomp out. And in order to collect taxes for Rome, the Romans came up with a system, a tax farming system, where they would auction off to the highest bidder the rights to gather taxes in a given geographical area. They would sell the rights to be the one who collects the taxes. It's kind of like, a, like purchasing the franchise rights to open a, a McDonald's, you know? I have the rights, the franchise rights to own or to open a franchise in this particular area. And the, the highest bidder would, would become the chief tax collector in that area. In fact, in Luke chapter 19, which we're going to get to someday, we are, we're going to read about one of those chief tax collectors, right? A man named Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector in the town or city of Jericho. And in large cities, in large cities like Jericho, or, or Capernaum, or Caesarea along the, along the Mediterranean Sea, um, the tax collectors, because they were major tax collection centers at that time, they would hire other tax collectors to work for them and help with the collection of taxes, manning the tax booths and things like this. And, and so Levi, he's not the chief tax collector in Capernaum, but he's one of these tax collectors who is working in Capernaum. Now, we need to know some more stuff about, about these tax collectors. Because they were Jewish people who had made a decision to go to work for the Romans, right? The occupying force in Israel. They were working for the enemy and therefore amongst the Jewish people, they were seen as traitors, right? You, you, are, you are working for the enemy who is occupying our land. But not only were they working for the enemy, tax collectors had a horrible, horrible reputation for extorting money from the people. And here's how it worked. Here's how it worked. The way that the system was set up, again, you had the highest bidder becomes the chief tax collector in that area, right? And the way that it was set up is that Rome would say, okay, this is the population of this area. This is how much we think you need to collect for taxes this year. So they would say, this is what you need to collect. The chief tax collector's job was to make sure we collected this much you know, tax from the people, and then Rome would say, do you have the money? You say, yes, we do. We Here it is. We pay the taxes. But if you were able to collect more than what Rome was requiring, Rome was perfectly fine with you keeping all the extra for yourself. You see the problem? I mean, what a, what a system set up in order for someone to take advantage of others. And so these tax collectors, they were able to collect more than was required. They were, they were squeezing their own people for everything they could get. They came up with extra taxes on everything. If Rome wanted 5%, they'd say, how about 7%? They just completely squeezed the people out of everything they had. And how did they get away with it? They had the protection of Rome, right? You're sitting at the tax booth, and who's standing right outside the tax booth? A Roman soldier. I don't like these taxes. I don't care. I don't care. And take it up with the guy there with the, with the sword, you know? So the tax collectors had a horrible reputation for extortion amongst the people. 
And so what happened is two things, really. Two things happened. The tax collectors became ridiculously wealthy. They became really wealthy. And they also became extremely hated by the Jewish people. They were seen as traitors who had gone to work for Rome, and they were seen as thieves. The tax collectors were viewed as as people who had turned their back on their own people, and they had turned their backs on God. They were so despised, they were so despised that the Jewish people, uh, among the Jewish people, that they were not even allowed to attend synagogue services. Not allowed, not allowed to be there. They, They were considered unclean. We talked about what that means a couple weeks ago, right? To come in contact with a tax collector, to to be touched by a tax collector means you're now going to become unclean, right? They were so dishonest and so distrusted that they were not even allowed to to testify in court. They couldn't be brought as as someone, as 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 a witness. They were considered some of the vilest sinners listed alongside robbers, adulterers, and prostitutes. And so the fact that Jesus, the fact that Jesus is is walking along the sea in the city and he sees Levi, he notices Levi, he approaches Levi, and then he invites Levi to come and follow me. Wow. I mean, this is a really big deal. Jesus is reaching out to someone that no other rabbi would have ever considered reaching out to. Jesus is extending an invitation that he has already given to his other disciples. Remember his invitation to Peter, Andrew, James, and John? He said, come and follow me, right? We talked about that a few weeks ago. Jesus is inviting Matthew to be his follower, his disciple. We talked about the Hebrew word, to be a Talmud. It's an invitation to follow Jesus, to learn from Jesus, to become more and more like Jesus. And by the way, that's the same invitation that Jesus has given to all of us as well. When you say, I'm I'm a, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus, what you're saying is, I am learning to, to, to what Jesus did so that I can do what Jesus did. I want to live and love like Jesus, we, we become his followers. What a moment. What a moment this must have been for Levi. No doubt. There's no doubt in my mind that he had heard all about this now famous rabbi, Jesus, the one who had been traveling all around the region, teaching in synagogues, performing miracles, healing lepers, healing paralytics. And, and this is Capernaum. This is Levi's home, and it is now the home base of Jesus' ministry. Levi had to have known about Jesus. Maybe he'd even heard Jesus as he was teaching by the shorelines. Maybe his tax booth was close enough that he could hear Jesus teaching. But but Levi was a tax collector, right? So even if he knew about Jesus, even if he had heard Jesus teach, in his mind, the, the, the last thing he would have ever expected is a rabbi who is training disciples on, on what it means to live for God the last thing that Levi would have expected is a rabbi like that to come and approach him and say, you should be one of my disciples. What an amazing day for Levi. And Levi is no fool. He's no fool. He recognizes the incredible opportunity and the privilege that Jesus is giving him. And so he responds immediately. And it says, leaving everything, he rose and he followed Jesus. Pretty cool, right? What an amazing day. By the way, 
uh, you know, some commentators make a note, and I think it's pretty valid, that, that when Peter, Andrew, James, and John left everything to follow Jesus, they left their fishing boats, they knew they could always go back to it, right? In fact, we know that they did for a period, didn't they? They went back to their boats. When Levi walks out of the tax booth and leaves, he's done. He ain't never going to get that job back. There's going to be another, another person ready to fill that shoe and get filthy rich doing it. Wow, what an amazing day for, for, uh, for Levi. So <clears throat> before we continue, there's something else, though, that I need to, to, to point out uh, about this particular tax collector named Levi. Because he's actually known by another name in the scriptures. Anybody know what his other name is? Anybody? Matthew. Wow, a lot of you knew it. It's great. As we're going to see in a few weeks, this tax collector named Matthew is going to be chosen by Jesus as one of a special group of disciples, a special group of Jesus' followers called the 12 disciples, the ones that became known as what? The apostles, right? Matthew is, this tax collector is going to end up being one of Jesus' apostles. How cool is that? He's also the one who's going to end up writing the gospel of Matthew, right? You're like, Luke, no, no, it's Matthew. He wrote Matthew. The tax collector sitting at that tax booth one day is going to end up being used by God to record scripture in the New Testament. How amazing is that? And here's what I really find interesting. If you read this story of Jesus calling the tax collector, it's, it's written in Matthew, it's written in Mark, and it's written in, in Luke. And the details of this story, as well as the chronology of the story, make it absolutely certain that all three writers are describing the exact same event. But while Math, uh, Mark and Luke both refer to this tax collector by the name of Levi, as I've been doing this morning, in Matthew's gospel... He is referred to as Matthew, the tax collector. So Matthew, writing his books, says he didn't call himself Levi. He called himself Matthew, which is interesting, right? Because, again, he wrote, he wrote the book. Now, there's a few explanations for why, why, why are Mark and Luke calling him Levi, and why is Matthew referring to him as, as Matthew? And there's a few different explanations. It wasn't uncommon for people to have two names, but I believe that the best explanation, I think the best explanation is that Jesus may have changed Levi's name to Matthew after he became a follower of Christ. After he decided to follow Jesus, that Jesus may have changed his name to Matthew. And we see this throughout the scriptures, right? There's many examples. God changed Abram's name to Abraham. God changed Jacob's name to Israel. Jesus changed Simon's name to Peter. I think it's quite possible that when Levi left the tax booth to follow Jesus, Jesus looked at him and said, from now on, you're going to be called Matthew. The name Matthew, it means gift of God, gift of God. And so as Matthew is writing his story here in Matthew chapter 9, he doesn't refer to himself as Levi he refers to himself as Matthew, gift of God. His life had been changed by Jesus, whereas once he had become rich at the expense of the Jewish people during his time as a, as a tax collector. After following Jesus, 
Matthew became a gift of God to the Jewish people, right? Right in the gospel of Matthew, which by the way, I, I, we talked about this at the beginning of the, of the series, but each gospel has its own unique audience in mind. Guess who the audience in mind is for Matthew? The Jewish people. Matthew had gone from being a, a, a pariah amongst the Jewish people to being a gift of God for the Jewish people. Jesus transformed his life. Isn't that amazing? And he's done the same for many of us, hasn't he? Completely, I am not the same person I was before Jesus. Are you? Are you? That's why, by the way, that's why your testimony is the greatest thing you have to share with others. You cannot argue with a changed life. You cannot argue. Jesus changes lives. What an incredible day this must have been for Levi, right? But what a shocking turn of events for everyone else, okay? Great day for Levi. This is exciting. He, he just got invited to be a disciple of the, probably the most remarkable rabbi that they had ever heard of, right? For Jesus to invite a tax collector to come and follow him, this, this had to be, I mean, confusing at the very least to everybody else and shocking. The other disciples, can you imagine Peter, Andrew, James, and John, these fishermen? They're like, are you kidding me? We're going to have a tax collector walking around with us everywhere. Do you, do you have any idea what you're doing to us, Jesus? They're going to hate us just as much as they hate him. What are you doing? What have we signed up for? Man. And for the religious leaders, the Pharisees, there is no question. There is no question that this invitation from Jesus would have been absolutely appalling, completely unacceptable for a man who claims to be the Messiah. But isn't that just one of the things that we love about Jesus? When we read the Bible, one of the things that is so shocking is the types of people that Jesus reaches out to. He reaches out to those that everyone else has given up on, the ones that seem hopeless, right? But if there's anything that we learn from stories like this is that nobody is too far gone for Jesus to reach, right? What type of people, be honest with yourself, what types of people are you tempted to see as beyond hope? You think there's no way. They're never, they're never gonna come to Christ. They're never gonna change. Maybe, maybe it's not a type of a person. Maybe there's a specific person in your mind that you're just like, I, I don't think that person is ever, ever gonna change. I wanna encourage you not to give up. Don't give up on them. Keep praying. Keep praying. Keep, keep pointing them to Jesus. And you say, I, I try. I try to talk about Jesus with them, but they don't wanna listen. Well, then stop talking and just live like Jesus before them. You know, and then maybe, maybe... When they see Jesus in you, maybe they will be convinced and they'll ask more, right? I'm not saying just live it and never talk it. We need to share the truth. But if you've got someone in your life that you're praying for that doesn't seem like they're ever going to come to Christ and they're sick and tired of hearing you talk about Jesus to them, maybe it's time to just start living it in front of them, Amen. right? Amen. Keep showing them Jesus with your life. Because, listen, nobody is beyond the reach of Jesus. Nobody. 
And so Levi, Levi leaves everything, leaves everything to follow Jesus. And in verse 29, we read that, and Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. Okay, so the very first thing that Levi does after accepting Jesus' invitation to follow him is to throw a huge party. He's throwing a feast for Jesus. Luke says that Levi made him, Jesus, a great feast in his house. It's a a tangible expression of his gratitude and an obvious display of his desire for others to meet Jesus as well. So Levi hosts this, this great big party with Jesus as the guest of honor. And, you know, he invites all of his, his fellow tax collectors and, you know, any other friends and acquaintances that he might have to come. So who's going to come to this party? Other notorious sinners, right? Because the regular Jewish people are not spending time hanging out with, with tax collectors. But, but Levi, he's excited. He wants to celebrate this huge change in his life, and he wants others to meet Jesus for themselves. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? What an appropriate response from Levi, inviting others to come to Jesus, inviting them to come meet Jesus. You know, it's a very natural response for those who have come to know him themselves. Because when you've experienced the, the love of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, his mercy, his forgiveness, you want others to experience it as well. When you have experienced the freedom that comes through a relationship with Jesus, you're like, man, I just, I want them to have that freedom too. When you realize that, that Jesus is what they need, like the friends in the, in the story of the paralytic and like Levi here, you, you want to bring your friends to Jesus. So, all right, so we, get, we, we got to picture this scene. Jesus is where now? He's at Levi's house, okay? He's at Levi's house. And because Levi is probably quite wealthy, it was probably a, a large home, probably with a large courtyard, large enough to, to host a crowd. And there in the middle of the crowd is Jesus. Listen, the holy, the perfect, the, the, the son of God is reclining at the table with a large t- uh, gathering of tax collectors and what Luke calls others. <laughs> there were others there. When the Pharisees show up, and we're going to get to that in a little bit here, when the Pharisees show up, they're not quite so kind as to say others. They just say sinners. He's at a table with a bunch of tax collectors and sinners. But what what we're dealing with here is a home that is filled with some of the worst reputations in all of Capernaum. It is quite a gathering there at Levi's house. And there in the middle of it is Jesus, right? Along with his disciples. Can you imagine how uncomfortable Peter and James like, I don't know what to do. I know this is really awkward. We don't hang out with these types of people. You know what that's like, right? When you find yourself in a crowd that you're not used to being in, right? But there's Jesus right there. It's a feast. It's a celebration. There's, there's laughter. Maybe there's music. I'm not sure. But there's, there's food, clearly. We know that there's food. There's drink, probably wine. And there, there's, there's just 
there's fellowship happening around a table and there's, there's stories being shared. And you have to understand that in that culture, to, to, to recline at a table and to break bread with someone, that was a sign of fellowship. It was a sign of friendship. To invite someone into your home and for them to come in was to say, we're, we're friends. We're entering into, into meaningful relationship here. And so Jesus is, is, is there in this house. He's enjoying a time of genuine fellowship with who? With sinners, right? And get this, he did it without entering into sin himself. You realize that's possible? Because I think sometimes, sometimes, Christian, we are so tempted to isolate ourselves out of fear of being contaminated by the world that we are no use to bring in the truth of the gospel to the world. We're so afraid that we might catch their sin as though it's contagious, right? Jesus shows us that you can be having fellowship, genuine relationships and friendships with those who don't know Christ without entering into sin. You can do it. We struggle with it, don't we? There is a real temptation. We have to be on guard. We need to be prayed up. You don't just walk in unarmed, right? We gotta be prepared, but you can do it. Jesus did it so much that in Matthew chapter 11, we're told that Jesus' opponents, as a put down, they referred to Jesus as a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's his, he, yeah. oh yeah, Jesus, that rabbi, yeah, he's the one that's a friend with sinners. He's a friend with tax collectors. And Jesus is like, you bet. Yes, I am. Jesus was not afraid to spend time with sinners. And we shouldn't be afraid either. Amen. We should not be afraid to spend time with those who don't know Christ. We can, and I would say we should be spending time with those who don't know Jesus, right? You can enjoy genuine fellowship and friendship with non-Christians without entering into sin. You know, it's really great is that, that there they are sitting around the table and Levi's friends are getting to know Jesus because they're there with him, getting to know this, they're getting to know this rabbi that their friend Levi has literally just giving away everything for. Levi's saying, I'm gonna leave this all behind and follow Jesus. And they're like, this guy must be pretty, pretty impressive for Levi to give all that up. You know, when we spend time with those who don't know Jesus, that should be our goal as well. And some of you might hear this and you say, oh good, so Pastor Chris says it's a good idea for me to go out and hang out in the bars and get drunk. And No, I didn't say that. Did I say that? No, I didn't say that. He's on a mission. He's on a mission. But see, then here's the other extreme. Sometimes we're like, okay, nope, my mission is I'm gonna go, I'm gonna hang out in bars and, 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 and so I can preach the gospel at them. Preach the gospel. I'm gonna go down and I'm gonna get in the bar, I'm gonna hand out Bible tracts, I'm gonna stand up on my bar stool and, 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 and condemn them and tell them that they're going to hell. That's what I'm gonna do. That's not what Jesus did. That's not what he did. He, was, he had genuine friendship and fellowship with sinners. Genuine friendship and fellowship with them. He loved them. He loved them. But he didn't hide the truth either, right? Jesus, when he, when, he was, when he was with sinners, he wasn't afraid to say, you know, go and sin no more. He didn't. He didn't hide the truth. And, and, and hey, we gotta practice that. We gotta get better. We gotta learn how to be able to communicate truth in a way that is loving, right? It's what we need to do. 
So we, need, we don't compromise truth, but we still reach out to those who are lost, right? That's what Jesus did. Well, it probably doesn't come as any great surprise. This is no great surprise that, that when the Pharisees heard that Jesus was in that house having genuine friendship and fellowship at that party, they were not happy. They were not happy. They, they would have been happy, by the way, if Jesus was in there and he had done what I just said, if he was in there saying, you're a bunch of sinners and that, you're all going to hell. And if he was preaching at them and yelling at them and like the Pharisees would be like, yes, yes, we love Jesus, right? That, they would have loved that. The Pharisees would have loved that. But they didn't love the fact that he was being a friend to them. They were outraged. Verse 30 says, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled uh, it's, uh, it, in, in the original language, it's just like they, they rah, 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 rah. That's kind of what it says there at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now, the text isn't particularly clear as to whether this challenge happened during the party, whether they were like standing right out in the streets, just like, what's he doing? You know, out in the streets, peeking through the windows, <laughs> you know? Oh, my God, move my phylactery. <laughs> So, right? So, but it doesn't say whether that happened like in the moment or maybe they heard about it later and then they approached Jesus' disciples to confront them about it. But the, but the Pharisees, they are genuinely upset. So what do they do? They, they tighten their robes, right? They tighten up their robes so as not to be contaminated. They, they, they make sure that they, they look just right. And they march up to Jesus' disciples to confront them. Now, again, we, 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 we've got to keep in mind that in an attempt to follow their, their long lists of rules and, and regulations for pleasing God, the Pharisees went out of their way to avoid the type of people that Jesus was fellowshipping with. They, they, and they thought they were doing the right thing. They really did. The last thing that a Pharisee would want is to become ceremonially unclean. And so they made sure they keep their distance, right? And so they come up to Jesus' disciples and they said, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? In other words, they're saying, this is unacceptable and completely inappropriate behavior for anyone who wants to live a godly life. What are you doing? You're breaking bread and sharing meals with tax collectors and sinners. Don't you realize that you are now unclean? I think they genuinely thought, like, you guys have really messed yourselves up now, right? Notice who they confront, though. Who did they confront? The disciples. They didn't confront Jesus. I, I, I find that interesting. I'm not sure. Maybe they're, maybe they're intimidated by Jesus. I mean, if you think about it last week in last week's story, right, all they had to do was think bad thoughts about what Jesus was doing, and he buried them, Right? <laughs> They're like, we're not going to go up and tap him on the shoulder and confront him. Let's try his disciples instead. Why are you doing this, was their objection. Now, in a minute, we're going to see that, that Jesus is actually going to jump in and answer the Pharisees' question. They didn't ask Jesus, but he's going to answer the question anyway. But before we get to Jesus' response, I, I, I want to pause to consider how the disciples could have answered this question. The disciples are being confronted with the question, why are you doing this? Why are you spending time 
with tax collectors and sinners? And here's the answer. Here's what they could have said. Because Jesus eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners. That would have been a perfect answer. Why? Because Jesus does. Remember, these disciples have left everything to do what? To follow Jesus. What does it mean to follow Jesus? To follow him, to follow Jesus. So you go where Jesus goes. You do what Jesus does. And so the Pharisees come up and say, why are you doing this? We said, because Jesus is, and we just, we do what Jesus does. We go where he goes. Honestly, if I'm being honest, I was a little concerned about the fact that we were going to the tax collector's house. I really wasn't on board with it. But Jesus went, so we went. Jesus does, so we do too. And we need to remember that as followers of Jesus because I'm telling you, as you decide to follow Jesus, I I promise you, he's going to lead you to do things that other people, even well-intentioned Christians might say, what are you doing? What are you doing? He might lead you into places that nobody else wants to go. He might lead you to people that everyone else is afraid of. And when the questions come, we need to be able to say, I am just following the lead of my rabbi, Jesus. That's why the disciples were in Levi's house. That's why they were there. They never would have gone there on their own right? They were following Jesus. Well, when Jesus hears the question, I don't know, I don't, it doesn't look like he gave the disciples a chance to respond. They were probably like, da, 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 right? I'm not, I don't know. We're being confronted by Pharisees, Jesus, right? And so Jesus steps in to give them, the Pharisees, an answer. He's going to explain why he is eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. Verse 31, we uh, read, and Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It's always amazing to me to see how much Jesus can say in so few words, you know? Some of you are like, man, I wish that you had that same gift. That's... (laughs) That's, Jesus, Luke wrote this whole story in like, what, five verses, and you're going to take five hours, you know, to explain it. Jesus answers their question with with a very simple illustration. He says, healthy people, they don't seek help from a doctor, do they? Who seeks help from a doctor? Sick people, Right? Jesus looks at these people, uh, the Pharisees rather, and he he says, you want to know why I spend time with tax collectors and sinners? I'll tell you why. Because they're sick. They're sick. And they know that they are sick. Jesus says that they are the reason why I have come. I have come to call sinners, those who are sick, to repentance. I've come to invite people to turn away from their sins. By the way, that's what repentance means, right? Right? Jesus isn't coming, he didn't come to say, oh, your sins are fine, just keep doing it. It's fine, I love you, you're good, do whatever you want. That's not the message of Jesus, is it? No, he called them to repentance. He's he's calling them to turn away from their sins because he knows that's how you get healthy, right? By turning away from your sins and turning to Jesus, the one who paid for your sins. 
Jesus, he is the great physician, right? We've referred to him that way, right? He is the great physician who is able to heal us from our sins and to give us new and eternal life. But if a doctor never has contact with patients, how is he going to treat them? You're like, Zoom. Yes. He'll do it through Zoom. Yes. They didn't have Zoom yet, okay? In order to receive his healing and forgiveness, we have to recognize, though, that we have need. We have need. And sick people recognize that they have a need. And so they go to a doctor for help. Can I tell you something? The Pharisees, the Pharisees that Jesus is talking to here, they had just as much need as the tax collectors and the sinners that Jesus was spending time with. Bible says that there is none righteous, not even one. So don't, don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying. It's like, oh, I see. So you're saying that we're righteous and they're sinners. I get it. So you're not here for us. You're here for them because I'm already right. That's not what Jesus is saying, is he? But the Pharisees were convinced that because of their outward performance and all of their attempts to appear righteous, that they were okay. But they had neglected the inward sins of the heart, right? I love what Warren Wearsby points out. He says this about the Pharisees. They may not have been prodigal sons who were guilty of sins of the flesh, sins that everyone could see, right? But they were certainly elder brothers who were guilty of sins of the spirit. In Matthew's gospel, we're told that, that Jesus actually finishes his answer to these Pharisees with these words. He says in Matthew chapter nine, verse 13, we read that Jesus said, go and learn what this means. Quote, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, end quote. Now Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament book of Hosea, chapter six, verse six. It's, it's a passage that no doubt these Pharisees probably had memorized. They probably had that passage memorized, but they had not yet internalized it. Like their ancestors who were, who were being rebuked in Hosea, Jesus wants the Pharisees to realize that they have become so focused on their outward appearances, their, their sacrifices, and, and all the good things that they were doing for everyone to see that they had neglected the matters of the heart, things like love, things like compassion and mercy. You know, these Pharisees would rather see these tax collectors be eternally separated from God. And Jesus says, that's crazy. That's crazy. You need to go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Go, read it again. And this time, put it into practice. I'm gonna close with this. In Luke chapter 18, we read that Jesus told a parable. He's telling a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Can you guess who they were? The Pharisees. To those who were treating others with contempt, it says in Luke 18. So let's just read this parable that Jesus shared. He said in Luke chapter 18, verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee. The other, a tax collector. Right? Seems to fit the story we're talking about today, doesn't it? The Pharisee, 
standing by himself, prayed thus. No doubt loud enough for everyone to hear. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Powerful, powerful parable. And I think we see it in this passage with Jesus reaching out to the tax collectors and sinners at Levi's house. So this morning, it's my prayer that each and every person who is listening to the sound of my voice would recognize their need for Jesus in the same way that Levi recognized his need. And then praise God that he sent his son to rescue us from our sins. Jesus came, Luke 19, 10, right? Jesus came to seek and to save those who were lost. I'm so glad that Jesus sought me, aren't you? If you've never received his forgiveness, I wanna invite you to repent of your sins. Turn away from your sins and turn to Jesus. Make that same decision that Matthew made, to leave everything and fully surrender your life to Jesus and choose to follow him. And for those of you who have already made that decision, whew, I've got a tough one for you here. My prayer is that you would follow him wherever he leads you. To really say, Jesus, there is no place that you ask me to go that I will not go. That's a tough prayer, isn't it? Because if you really mean that, you ask it. I'm telling you, God may call you to go to places you never would have gone before to do things that you never would have done before. And when you do, you might expect that some people will say, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? And all you can answer and say is, I'm following the lead of my rabbi, Jesus. And Jesus goes to these places. Jesus does these things and I'm gonna do it too. And I don't know why God has called me to go here. I don't know why he's asking me to do this, but I know that he has. And so I'm gonna obey. My prayer is that we would follow Jesus wherever he leads. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much. We thank you so much for the incredible grace, mercy, and love that you have poured out on our lives through your son, Jesus. And God, we thank you so much that, that, that many, many, many of us can say, yes, I remember. I remember when Jesus tapped me on the shoulder like he tapped Levi and said, follow me. And I remember when I said yes. God, we thank you that you have called us. We thank you that we have been given the incredible privilege to follow you as your disciples, learning to live like you, to love like you, and to become more and more like you. And God, we pray for those who have not yet made that decision. We pray that they would see your incredible love for them and that they would turn their hearts over to you. 
to follow you, to receive your forgiveness. And for those of us, God, who already do know you, I pray, God, would you give us a heart for those who are lost like your son Jesus had. God, help us to be obedient to your calling, to your leading. Help us to be willing to go wherever you lead us, to do whatever you call us to do, that you might receive all the glory and honor through our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.